are listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a PhD student at New York University, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Paul Middlebrooks, a neuroscientist and host of the Brain Inspired podcast, which explores the intersection of neuroscience and artificial intelligence. Paul's PhD thesis is titled Neuronal Correlates of Metacognition in Primate Frontal Cortex, which he completed in 2011 at the University of Pittsburgh. We start by discussing his work on the thesis, which involved operationalizing metacognition, or thinking about thinking, using a task in which monkeys learn to place bets that reflect their confidence in a decision. We talk about how studying consciousness led him to work on this problem, the difficulty of measuring metacognitive phenomena, and he gives a great overview of the single neuron studies that he did during his PhD, as well as alternative methods of measuring neural activity. Then we move to talking about the intersection of artificial intelligence and neuroscience, including the goals of each field, how neuroscience might help AI, and how AI might help neuroscience. We can only scratch the surface in one episode, but it's a great overview, and I'd highly recommend checking out the Brain Inspired podcast, and I'm sure that future episodes of the Thesis Review will explore these ideas further. The Thesis Review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you'd like to support the podcast, we're now on Patreon at patreon.com slash thesis review, where you can subscribe and become a recurring supporter. Alternatively, if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. Your donations go directly towards keeping the show up and running. And thank you to all of those who have contributed so far. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Paul Middlebrooks with Neuronal Correlates of Metacognition in Primate Frontal Cortex on the Thesis Review. Today, I'm sure we'll discuss a lot of different ideas like cognition, metacognition, memory, working memory, things like this. But maybe to start, could we just take a step back and think about where these really high-level concepts even come from? So are they sort of from introspection or from some set of experiments that we run and then we abstract into a higher-level concept? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. And there's a lot of people talking these days about whether we have the cognitive ontology right, which... The cognitive ontology is like the set of these words, right, that are supposed to mean something, right? Like working memory. Is that something we have? Is that a real thing? Or is that just the thing that we call it? Um, and a lot of people point back to William James. And if you look at his table of contents, it really hasn't changed since back then. What we, The words that we use and the abstractions that we use to refer to these um, psychological processes. Um mm-hmm. So you could blame William James, you could blame Aristotle, <laughs> but I, I mean, at some point you have to use words, you know, for something. So 
language is one of our highest or maybe the highest cognitive abilities that we have, people, you know, say. So, and language is at once useful, right, for communication between each other. I think it's also useful, though, just to have a, let's say a word like, um, I don't know, one of the words you use, let's say working memory, for instance, for some reason, that's one that people come back to. Uh, I have like this abstracted concept of working memory in my head. And whether that means anything at the neuronal level, um, I can still kind of refer back to it and kind of dance around it. So it, it's almost like a signpost that I can keep coming back to. Um, and part of an abstract concept is that you lose a lot of the details, right? Mm -hmm. So then when you're studying the details around what working memory might be, how um, it might be realized in brains, et cetera, you can always kind of come back to this central notion and see how it checks in with your very abstracted um, language-based term. Well, you're a language person, so I, I should be asking you uh, <laughs> about this stuff because I really don't know much about language. But so th that's my two cents, at least. I don't know who to blame. Yeah, so it's probably a combination of things that one is just historical that we've had these terms for so long. Uh, and then maybe when we actually go to do experiments, it's not precise enough for the experiment that we're actually doing. We might have to actually refine it down to something that's more precise. But the high level term is still useful for kind of organizing our thoughts or being at a higher level of some taxonomy. Yeah, I mean, th these terms also kind of go into the the idea of Mars, uh, David Mars levels. I don't know if you've talked about that on your show, but mm -hmm. David Mars sort of famously divided the way to analyze uh, cognitive things, or, or all things, I suppose, into his three famous levels. And at the top, you have the computational level. Uh, and that's where you'd, you'd put something like working memory. Like, what what is the goal of some cognitive process, right? So in working memory, the goal would be to, well, I don't know how it's defined these days, but store uh, for short periods in your mind um, a certain amount of information, right? And be able to manipulate that information. But then I, I suppose below that you have uh, the second level, which is the algorithmic uh, level where you have to figure out how do you implement the working memory? What steps do you take to store that information and be able to manipulate it? And then down at the base level, the base, the level that I spent a lot of my uh, research life doing is the implementation level that no one cares about these days. The actual brain how the, the neurons, the mechanisms, how those are instantiating the algorithms that then instantiate the, the computational process. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, in, in a sense, these computational level terms and ideas are the theories that you go in with when you're doing at least experimental neuroscience research. You go in with some theory about what you're studying, and you're looking for the mechanisms and the algorithms underlying that particular uh, cognitive function. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in that sense, it's quite useful as well. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think we can keep in mind uh, these things during the rest of the discussion. We'll probably revisit them. But maybe to start, uh, we could go back to before your PhD. What was your background and what led up to you deciding to go down this road of doing a PhD? Well, I guess you could start. I was a college failure. <laughs> I mean, I nearly failed out of college. Mm. I mean, I, I barely got into graduate school. So I performed so poorly uh, at the university level. I took a job in a clinical laboratory in the basement of this hospital for a couple of years and then decided, so I, I majored in molecular biology. Mm. Neuroscience wasn't even a thing at my, at the University of Texas way back in the 70s when I was there, or, you know, not quite the 70s, but almost. And 
So I, I ended up taking a job with my molecular biology skills, you know, at the undergrad level molecular biology skills in a clinical laboratory, uh, and then had to, and, and then transitioned into working as a, a research technician in molecular uh, a molecular biology laboratory, and then transitioned into a a neuroscience laboratory where uh, we studied well, synaptic plasticity using mouse visual cortex slices. So you take a mouse, extract the brain, uh, you'd slice up its early visual cortex, and then you'd apply drugs to it while you stimulated and recorded from uh, that visual cortex. Mm -hmm. That's piece of that slice of brain, right? And that's been extracted. And I actually had to work. Um, so that was about four years that I, I worked as a research technician before I felt like uh, I could even apply to graduate school. But But that's when I got interested in thinking that I wanted to go to graduate school really is working in the neuroscience laboratory studying synaptic plasticity and realizing it seemed like a really exciting time. Mm -hmm. uh, that was, this was still kind of the early days in the synaptic plasticity, although that, you know, the original literature goes back quite some time. Uh, but it seemed like there were many questions to ask and that we, I thought we may not be asking the right questions. And I still feel that way. And I don't know that I made any progress helping to start asking the right questions, but um, but it's a fascinating thing to think about what the right questions are and how to go about doing it. Yeah, you know? mm -hmm. I see. So then, what though initially got you interested in research was it you were just working on molecular biology in your major, and then you decided to to start working on research. But I, you know, I think it was just working in the lab setting, and I mm -hmm. I grew up building things, and I always enjoy having my hands on things, and you know, figuring out how how things work. And, you know, in a molecular biology lab, you're doing a lot of hands-on, you're building gels, uh, you're extracting proteins from solutions, and you're running a bunch of machines. And, and that was even washing dishes at some, I even washed dishes as a line cook, you know, before I was a, I was a dishwasher in a, uh, a pool hall uh, restaurant, and then became a line cook. And that was even somewhat satisfying to me. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, so that sort of hands-on experience um, and being able to ask questions and uh, seek answers in an experimental fashion. I think uh, that really sunk into me. I, I really started to enjoy that. So I, I started thinking that I would enjoy going to graduate school, uh, just being in that environment, also being around really bright people. And I found in the molecular biology world, and also I have found throughout the years in the neuroscience world, uh, the people are just mostly uh, just a joy to be around. And it's just wonderful to be around bright people. So then eventually you decided to do a PhD. If you could think back, like what was your view of science, of the scientific process at that time? And did you go in with some goal of accomplishing something during the PhD when you were starting? I mean, I think at that point, really the only goal was to maybe prove to myself that uh, I could attain a PhD. Mm -hmm. You know, I really, I came in pretty naive. Like I didn't know what tenure was when I got into graduate school. Mm -hmm. And regarding the scientific process, I mean, I had the scientific method, um, you know, I, I knew about the scientific method, you know, from high school, right? But then using and implementing and doing the science is a very different thing. So I, I guess I went in pretty naive into how things actually happened in the lab, except that I did have that experience, you know, working as a research technician in labs a few years before. So that's really how I uh, got my chops learning about how science is actually done in, in wet labs and experimental labs. Mm -hmm. The title of your thesis is Neuronal Correlates of Metacognition in Primate Frontal Cortex. 
So between starting and and publishing the thesis, at what point did you start to to focus on this topic? And maybe we could go into this idea of metacognition specifically. So I went into graduate school wide-eyed and really just wanting to learn about consciousness, study consciousness, figure out how what what makes us conscious and what is consciousness. I wonder how many times I'm going to say consciousness in the next two minutes, but <laughs> but that's you know how I went into graduate school. I, I just got really lucky, you know, being accepted into a monkey neurophysiology lab um, with someone pretty young in his career who was this is Mark Summer, who was a really uh, just a great mentor for me because he let me explore and let me basically design this PhD uh, project, in, and he helped a ton, but. Uh, I mean, I, I spent the first year or so in graduate school just uh, learning about how consciousness was studied in humans and thinking about how I might be able to adapt uh, those sorts of studies where, you know, generally humans, you ask a human a question and they will t- give you an answer using language. Mm-hmm. That's how it works. But monkeys don't do that. Um, and this was a monkey neurophysiology lab. So I happen to be in a, a lab where my advisor studied eye movements. And so I had to, we had to figure out how to adapt. Well, so first of all, I, I th- had to think about, you know, given all of these different ways that people use to study consciousness in humans, how can I adapt any of those to the lab for a monkey eye movement lab task? Uh, and I mean, I, I basically just followed the literature. I ended up um, learning about blind sight. I don't, do you know what blind sight is? Mm-mm, no. So blind sight is this phenomenon that is supposed to index people's conscious awareness or, or lack thereof, actually. So blind sight happens when someone gets uh, damage in their early visual cortex in the back of their head, generally. And the, the gist of it is, um, you know, let's say it's damage on the left side, and that means you're unable to see your visual field on the right side is blind, quote unquote. Um, but many people, so if, if you put someone who has blind sight and can't see the right side of the of the visual field. You put them in a in front of a screen, and you start flashing things in the visual field. They will tell you that they can't see it. But then, if you ask them, um, well, sorry. So they they will actually perform as if they can see it more often than not. But they will tell you when you ask them, "Did you see that?" They say, "No, I was just guessing." Hmm. So they're above chance and actually being able to discriminate. Let's say you flash an apple or a, a bear, a bear or something, right? And they'll say, and you flash a bear in, in their, the hemifield where they can't see, they claim they can't see, and they'll say bear. I don't know if I said you flash a bear. You, let's say you flash a bear, and they say bear. And then they, you say, how did you know that? I didn't. I was just guessing. But they can do that about, way above chance often. Um, and so that's supposed to index this idea that um, you know, they're not visually, they're not aware. So they're performing this task without awareness. This led me to the idea of metacognition. I had never heard this term. Uh, it was coined in the 70s, actually. Actually, the, the term metamemory was coined in the mid-70s, and then metacognition came later in the late 70s. And we can talk about what that is in a second. But um, my train of literature led me to, as I was like, I, I just remember I was, I remember being even in a bar one time with a notebook and just sketching out different tasks and how to adapt it. And, you know, I, uh, uh, and finally I was at a, a coffee shop actually sitting outside and I came across this paper where they had monkeys performing a task, um, which eventually, which I, well, I think metacognition was in the title of the paper, um, which showed that monkeys could pre- perform 
metacognitive tasks. And I, I suppose we should talk about what that what that means at this point. So then metacognition, is it fair to say that it's at a high level thinking about thinking? Yeah, I like you did the air quotes there. I mean, that's what I would do too, <laughs> because that is the easiest way to, to, to say it. Yeah. Um, more technically, it would be the monitoring and control of some other cognitive process, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's most commonly studied uh, using confidence or uncertainty about some perceptual decisions, right? So let's say, you know, like, like tomorrow I may go snowboarding. And I know there's this particular part in the mountain where there's this jump and I always have to think about whether uh, I want to take it when I'm going down. And so let's say I'm, I'm approaching the jump, right? And the sun is kind of going down over the mountain. So that's, you know, it's a little hard to see as I approach. I have to think like, how confident am I, am I that I'll be able to like take this jump and live to, you know, do it another day or should I go around it? Right. Mm-hmm. So that'd be like monitoring my own confidence. Um, and then the other side is, is metacognitive control where, where I have to make the decision, right? So in, in that snowboarding example, as I approach the jump, I'm monitoring my confidence about whether I think I'm going to be able to make the jump. And then, and then I can control my body and probably go around the thing because, you know, my kids are there and I don't want to go to the hospital mm-hmm. and ruin the day for everyone. I see. So you could kind of break down metacognition into uncertainty and control. If I'm doing a math proof and I'm, I'm writing, so writing is the action that I'm taking, but in my head, there's a lot going on. So I'm thinking uh, of some solutions, so some chain of reasoning, and then I might think, that's a bad chain of reasoning. Let me go back and, and start over. So is it that second step where I think about the reasoning being bad? Is that the meta part? Yeah. Well, they're both meta. Uh, so mm-hmm. the the monitoring part is when you think that was a bad uh, proof move that I made or error in thinking. And then the control part is the restarting of the proof going back to the beginning or wherever you think you messed up. I see. That, see, that's an interesting case because that's all in your head. You don't have to, there's no behavioral output. And uh, you can't, you know, if to measure anything in the lab, you have to have behavioral output. So if, if I was going to measure you and, and study your metacognition, you'd have to let me know somehow that uh, you you maybe weren't doing the proof as well as you thought. Yeah, I see. Can you distinguish the metacognition from the kind of reasoning process itself? Because it seems like if you really go down and look at the definition, you could say that reasoning itself still involves thinking about your previous thoughts. So thinking about the previous reasoning steps. Yeah, I hadn't thought about about it in the reasoning case. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, everything you know, everything I say should be taken with a grain <laughs> of salt because it's been... Uh, a decade, yeah, since since I've really thought about these things and studied them in the lab, um, and psychology, I'm less aware of because there's all sorts of studies in education about the learning process and you know your metacognitive control. Uh, just like what what you're saying, there's all sorts of stuff in, in psychology studying people. Like, will I be able to solve that proof tomorrow? For instance, mm. uh, that's a metacognitive judgment uh, about the future. That's pros- prospective monitoring. It's called right. Um, but I don't know at the mechanism level, I don't know if there have been even computational models to think to to address whether something like reasoning would be uh, that you could actually make progress thinking thinking about metacognition at the reasoning level. I mean, we know it happens, mm-hmm. but it's sort of still at the beginning. I mean, there's a lot of people doing really good metacognition research right now. Mm-hmm. 
so it, it kind of exploded at very at the very end of my PhD um, and has sort of taken off. But but it's still the way that it's studied is um, basically at the lowest level. So did you see that target appear, and how confident are you that you saw? Which way? Which direction is this random um, cloud of dots moving coherently, left or right? And do you really think that it was moving left or right? How confident are you that you got it right or wrong? Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, so it's still very early days in scratching the surface, at least in terms of experimental work. I see. Yeah. And then the other thing was this aspect of requiring some behavior. In this math proof case, do you think that really understanding what metacognitive phenomena are going on is that somehow outside of the scientific method or? Do we just need better ways of like directly studying what's going on in my mind without having some external physical action like my arm moving or something? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, behavior is the the quintessential element in any sort of experimental setting. Mm-hmm. So, saying a word is behavior. Um, I mean, in your case, I, I don't know if you use pen and pen and paper or pencil and paper to do your math. Do you, or do you do it on an iPad or something? Uh, actually, nowadays iPad. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but you would still, there's behavior in erasing it. I mean, the actual realization that you're doing it wrong comes before the behavior, but the behavior is still a readout of that. I mean, there is some action taken. Um, But, you know, even if the action is tomorrow, there's behavior, right? Because you put, maybe one day you you think, oh, I did that wrong. And then you could just freeze and do nothing and just sit there and think, right? But eventually it's going to change your behavior. Mm Mm-hmm. But in a, you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to freeze for a day in a lab. So, but th- these are really hard questions. I mean, and I mean, this goes back to you know consciousness, right? There's not a well, I shouldn't say that. I'll get in trouble if I say there's not a satisfying account uh, or satisfying scientific approach to consciousness uh, because so many people are doing such great work in it, and that's the it's the ineffable thing. How do you measure something that? I mean, you, you know, you can have behavioral. Output, but that's not what you're interested in when you're interested in consciousness. You're interested in the the subjective phenomenal experience of someone, and that you just can't get to that uh, yet, I suppose, in a satisfying manner in the lab, anyway. So then, I, I think this is a good lead-in to to go into this first section and start talking about what you did here. So the first section or chapter, it's called metacognition in monkeys during an ocular motor task, and it seems like here. You were, of course, in this uh, domain of the scientific method. So inevitably, you had to kind of operationalize this idea of metacognition and come up with some way of measuring it. So could you just talk through what you did here? And Yeah. So, you know, basically every day I would, I would go uh, extract a monkey from a cage. They would get into a chair. I would wheel them down the hall and into the lab and um, put them in front of a, a screen where we would... Uh, like back project. Well, first to back up, um, because this, these are eye movement tasks, um, we would fix their head um, in place. So that, because you you know when when you tend to, if you look at an eagle over to the left, you're going to move your head and your eyes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but because we were eventually recording neural activity in areas uh, where we knew a lot about how those neurons responded to eye movements and to visual stimuli, um, we needed to control as much as we could. So we controlling the head movements uh, meant you you had to fix their head in place. Um, and so they were looking at a screen ahead of them and we would flash lights up on the screen and the way that they would report to um, to us and well, and to get reward 
was, you know, you flash a light up on this a light up on the screen, and a monkey will reflexively, or we will too, move our eyes to that light. Um, this is in a dim room, right? So it's just like a, a bright little light that comes on. You're going to look at it, mm-hmm. uh, and then you go through this long process of training them how you know, and, and then they get a little squirt of juice to reward them for their behavior of looking at the uh, light, and then you go through this long process of sort of teaching them up um, with different tasks that are more and more complicated. Um, and I'm only leading up to the, up to it this way because ours, we weren't certain that ours would work. Uh, we, we liked the task, but it was more complicated than, um, more demanding cognitively, uh, than any task that my advisor had trained. And I mean, it, I mean, it was ridiculous. It was such an exploratory thing, uh, for me to be doing, but mm-hmm. so the task we ended up with, um, it's called a re- the first part. It's in two stages, and the first part is called a reverse masking task, uh, where the trial starts with a, a light comes on in the middle of the screen, and that's how the monkey starts the trial by looking at that fixation point in the center of the screen, and then really quickly, a little flash of light just kind of uh, um, comes on kind of dimly and quickly out in the periphery at one of four locations, uh, and then I say quickly because right after it comes on, four kind of brighter targets come on. Um, and mask, those are the masks that mask where the target appeared. And the monkey's job at that point was to make an eye movement to where it thought the original target appeared, which one of those four locations. So it would make an eye movement to that location or to a location, and then it would have to come back to the fixation point to start the second part of the trial. Uh, And in that part, pretty simple, two targets came on, um, a green bet target and a, well, a green high bet target and a red low bet target. And the idea was if the monkey thought it got the decision part correct, moving its eyes to the target, then it should bet high, right? And if it did that, it got a lot of juice. Um, and if it, if it made a, a correct decision in the first part, but then went to the low bet target, it still got a little bit of juice, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, but if it got the decision part wrong, if it moved to a location, moved its eyes to a location where the target did not appear, and then bet high as if it were confident that it got that decision part right, it would, it would suffer a timeout and would have to wait two seconds or so until it began the next trial, which is just a terrible uh, punishment, right, for, for the monkey. Yeah, especially compared to juice. Yeah, they, they love the juice, yeah. Even if it's crystal light, they still <laughs> love it, even if it's fake sugar. But yeah, so, um, yeah, so, so the idea is that if, you know, if you're really keeping track of your actions, of your decisions, and have a sense of whether of your own confidence, then you should, uh, w- after you get a correct decision, after you correctly move your eyes to where the target was, you should bet high. And likewise, if you're if you're guessing and you didn't see the target and you just move your eyes randomly to one of those four locations, then you should bet low because you actually don't know. You have you know zero confidence essentially that you got that decision part correct. So you know months of training. The, the simplest tasks take a long time training monkeys to do. And this this took months to train, especially the first monkey, because in part of being a graduate student is at least in a um, an animal behavior lab that uses it, you know, where you have to train animals to perform any behavior. There is much training you how to train them. And there's this slow back and forth, and it's an embarrassing long process, you know, mm-hmm. and you feel uh, insufficient, essentially. Um so, so yeah, it took a long time to train the monkeys, but eventually, um, and, and it was like months with nothing and, you know, like just random betting, random decision, sometimes random. Well, the decision-making part was easier to train, right? Cause we could teach them. I could like 
make trials where the light, the target would come on and just sit there, right? Mm-hmm. Here it is, here it is. And then the masks would come up. So I could, I titrated that to where overall the monkey was getting about half right and half wrong during that decision mm-hmm. part. But it's, it's the betting and the reporting of the confidence that just took a really long time because you can't give them uh, verbal instructions. You have to like tweak things and make them realize what they need to do. Yeah. Right. It, it sounds like uh, coming from a machine learning perspective, it sounds like some of these reinforcement learning experiments where just nothing will be happening. And then randomly there'll be some spike in reward. And you see the agent kind of learning to do something. Do you see that? Do you feel like looking at the trajectory of the learning process? Do you feel often in like a re- re- uh, reinforcement learning context that, I mean, is there a sharp um, L-shaped curve where all of a sudden it gets it? Or I guess they're probably all different sorts of trajectories. Yeah. So, I mean, typically in just normal supervised learning, it'll be more of a, you know, consistent, smooth increase. Whereas in reinforcement learning, you have this aspect of exploration. So it could just spend a lot of time doing useless exploration. And then after waiting, you know, a long time, it happens to start finding something that's that's meaningful and it's able to improve from there. Yeah. I mean, I've seen like little toy examples where it's, it's striking how quickly it improves once it gets that first, uh, gets to the goal the first time, right? Exactly. And then three trials later, it's going straight to the goal. Not my monkey. That's not how it worked. Oh, okay. <laughs> a long, long exploratory period. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I did find it interesting that you had kind of learning curves, and it looked like almost yeah. like a machine learning learning curve. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is, a machine learning curve probably, if you took that uh, took that um, image and squashed it, uh, you know, the 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 real thing. I mean, because that's months, right? Yeah. So, like each bin, that figure is probably you know weeks and weeks, and so it's like. Here's three weeks, no improvement, no improvement. And then, I, I mean, if I remember correctly, I don't have it in front of me, but it's almost like a um, sigmoidal curve. I mean, it's not like it really jumps up. I mean, there's like a slow beginning. I mean, it's it's fairly disappointing, actually, if, you know, you think of humans as you, you, you have this aha moment when you're learning a game or when you're doing some reasoning task where it, it clicks and you get it. And that did not seem to happen, which, it, which was concerning mm. uh, because you would think, you know, if you were doing that task, if no one gave you any instructions, you would eventually think, oh, I know what to do. And then you would do it. But not so. The, I mean, the the monkeys in this case continued to have high exploratory behavior. And I mean, their metacognitive performance was not perfect by any means um, ever, you know. So so they their exploration parameter was set to high in general. And what that means, who knows. But, but in general, uh, you know, on average, they were performing well. Uh, in fact, the, the second monkey that I trained, who was actually a little bit younger than the first monkey, was kind of the superstar of my <laughs> PhD work, um, really got it much faster. Of course, I was a better trainer by that point, but uh, also just performed overall better um, after the monkey got the task as well. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about that, about just the overhead and the the amount of time it takes to run this experiment. So one thing that's tempting in machine learning is in some settings, it's really cheap to run experiments and it's tempting to almost start running experiments without knowing exactly why we're running them. (laughs) So I just want to get your sense of, of in this case, it seems like you really had to have everything figured out up front. It's almost like building a bridge. Like you had to have the plans for the bridge and then you had one chance to build it. 
I felt like that only because it, there, there is so much time and effort invested in it. I mean, it's never really like that because it never works out the way that you intend, right? I mean, I don't know about in machine learning, but everything in at least experimental neuroscience takes somewhere between two to four times as long as you plan it out to take. Mm. I mean, I know that's true for like construction sites and, you know, buildings that are, you know, the estimates that you get on any, any sort of construction project is it's never on time. I, I mean, it, so this is the same, same thing in neuroscience and experimental work. But that's partly why it's still acceptable to have an N of two. So I only, you know, two monkeys is because it's so expensive, so time consuming uh, that two is enough to like report on. It's an acceptable number of monkeys to use and report on in an, in an experiment, which seems kind of ridiculous uh, when you really think about it. But it, it is just, it's such valuable uh, data and so hard fought that uh, it's still deemed acceptable. Mm -hmm. So, I, see. I mean, he, you know, people who, I have a friend who um, does EEG work and he studies EEG in humans. Um, and he can, in like two days, kind of like your machine learning uh, approach, he can just kind of willy-nilly have an idea, throw a cap on someone, put them in the in the rig and try it out and see, you know, is this kind of working? Is it not working? And then throw it away or pursue it. And that mm -hmm. sounds like the approach that you can use a little bit in machine learning. Although I do think I do think there's a lesson to learn about having the constraint of it being so expensive. So then it it forces you to really sit down and think about what you're about to do. But then serendipity doesn't strike as much because a lot of the mistakes that you make, I'm imagining, I mean, you know, the more you swing at something, you're going to start making mistakes. And it's really the mistakes and the things that happen by luck or by chance that you, and if you can seize upon them and move with them, I, th I think in that respect, uh, there's a lot more room for serendipity if you can move fast. And there's, it's, it's high stakes with the monkeys because, right. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to cruise from anything, but you can be halfway through collecting your data and something happened to the monkey and it, if it dies, then you have to start the months long process again of training a different monkey, doing a surgery, right. you know, keeping it housed and happy and, you know, all that jazz. So, yeah, that's true. Scientific experiments are kind of a stochastic process. So it's not like building a bridge. It's kind of like you make plans for a bridge and then 30% of the time, I don't know, you might not be able to even build it or something. <laughs> you know that Mike Tyson quote, uh, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> That's close to a verbatim quote, but I mean, that really is one of the lessons one draws when going through a PhD in experimental, at least neuroscience. I can't speak for a lot of other experimental science, but, but yeah, I mean, that really hits home. <laughs> uh, one thing I talked about with Aaron Corville, who's just on the podcast was this idea of system one versus system two. So like system one type thinking is, more reflexive and system two is more contemplative doing this math proof might be system two because it involves some kind of slow steps of reasoning do you think that this task was more of a system one type thing where it might not be a kind of long decision process leading up to this action it was more of almost a reflex yeah well i mean half of what we do that's what we that's why we as humans right practice things and train at things you practice your scales on guitar or piano so that to move it from system two to system one. And I should say that I'll use those terms, but even in Kahneman's uh, book, Thinking Fast and Slow, he repeatedly warns against 
dividing things bimodally into system one and system two, and that they're completely fake constructs and how we shouldn't think of them that way. But we'll abstract and talk about them as if they actually do exist as separate processes. But yeah, I mean, you know, th- this it's the same sort of thing as uh, automated versus controlled uh, processing, I think is a, an older way to say it. And when you practice something, you want it to automate it, right? And to not have to think about it so that you can think about the other important things while your fingers are automatically moving over the keys or the guitar strings. So, I, I mean, I don't know how, there's no way to definitively answer your question. My hunch is that it became automatic uh, to them. And, you know, just like, um, I don't know, that you know, there are maybe card games and, you know, other games, let, let's say even chess, right? Where um, to get good at chess, you have to think 10 moves ahead or however many moves ahead you can and simulate it and play it out. Uh, and then the grandmasters of chess, and we really shouldn't be talking about chess anyway, since machine learning has conquered it and all other games, but the grandmasters don't think in terms of moves ahead. They, they think in terms of configurations of the board and they see an area of the board and it looks like it's in trouble and how to manage it, you know, without exactly knowing uh, step by step, without exactly playing out how the pieces move. And in that sense, it becomes automatic or heuristic is one way that Daniel Kahneman would probably put it. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think it probably became much more like that because they're doing for the monkeys, because they're doing thousands of trials, uh, every day for months. I mean, I don't know how it couldn't become automated. Right. Yeah. And then maybe just to briefly go back to this idea of consciousness, let's say we want to distinguish between some metacognitive phenomena that require conscious processing and others that don't does that distinction exist and then would we have a way of testing scientifically at least this distinction so is this phenomena requiring some conscious thought is this one not requiring it yeah well um i I don't want to get in trouble with all the people who are doing really because i'm going to have some consciousness researchers on my uh, podcast soon and they're doing great work Mm -hmm. but if you really push them uh we still don't have a great a tried and true account to, to assess whether something is phenomenally conscious, meaning it feels like something to have done it, right? Or, to, you know, to think or, and, and metacognition has been, and still is maybe, well, it's one of the best ways that people or most productive and popular ways and accepted ways that uh, people use to probe whether someone was conscious. So like these higher these higher order thought theories of consciousness where, I mean, basically it's set up like, like the way that metacognition is. And we didn't really talk about this, but um, when metacognition was formalized in the 1990s, it was formalized as you have these, what are called object level processes, like seeing something, whatever, a bear, right? In the, uh, a picture of a bear on a screen. And then you have the meta level. um, And the way that, which, which is the, in the way that metacognition works is, uh, you have information sent from the object level to the meta level, level, and that will be monitoring. And you have that meta level that then sends information to the object level, and that would be the controlling aspect. And you, you kind of just assume, because I assume you're conscious, you assume that I'm conscious, and you have to, when someone tells you that, that I'm thinking about the thing that I just did, uh, you have to just kind of buy it, right? I would buy it if you told me that. Um, but I wouldn't be able to prove it. And so I, it's still an ongoing thing. I mean, part of the hmm, um, depressing aspect of my PhD and, and just graduate school is realizing that 
if I had to, if I had to, well, two things. One, I think we don't have a good grasp on other animals' consciousness. Like I don't, I, I it, it's a different type of consciousness, something that we can't understand. I think I have a pretty good sense of your type of consciousness. I think it's kind of like my type of consciousness. I don't think we have a very good type of octopus consciousness, for instance, or monkey consciousness. And the other thing that I, that kind of was almost crushing to me is I, I really came to believe that you can, and people can perform metacognitive tasks without awareness. And if you can do that, then that's most likely what the monkeys were doing. Um, so it is interesting. You, you can have, if you buy some, what someone is saying, you, you know, they can be aware of performing metacognitively well, and they can also be unaware of performing metacognitively well. So metacognition, metacognitive accuracy is not like the line in the sand uh, for whether one is subjectively aware of what's going on versus not. So I, I mean, weird. I know that I didn't answer your question at all, but but that's because I don't have an answer. <laughs> I know it's frustrating to ask something like that and just have have nothing in response worth really, uh, you know, taking home or changing your mind about anything. So, <laughs> Except that figuring out consciousness seems to be difficult. <laughs> yeah, continues to be difficult. And that never goes away. I mean, it's I really admire uh, people who stay in the field because they are subject to just the constant criticism that, well, how do you really know? And when pushed, you have to say, I don't really know, but we're making progress. So it's, it's all about the process, right? Not about the, the goal. Yeah, so then maybe we could move to the next section. So could you talk through how you decided to then uh, measure things at the neuron level? Yeah, so the lab I was in was sort of a classic neurophysiology lab where the way that you asked what was going on at the neuronal level is that you would put a single wire or electrode down into the brain and you would, you know, so you have a monkey performing a task in the other room uh, and then you go into the adjacent room and you have... You know, you run current through the wire and you run it through an amplifier and, and then an audio output. And as you're lowering the electrode down in the brain, you're, you're listening for neurons. And so you can hear the neurons popping and, you know, you can kind of hear them popping in the distance and then you kind of come up on them and you, can, you realize when you're eventually right next to a neuron and you can isolate the signal on an oscilloscope uh, or a digital oscilloscope on the computer these days. Uh, and then you would record the action potentials or firing of those neurons while the monkey was performing a task. Mm -hmm. You would um, have to isolate a neuron while the monkey's performing the task and just, you, you kind of have to like stare at the computer screen, make sure you're getting all the spikes. Uh, you have these little window discriminator boxes and you have to like capture those spikes, but not the noise in the background. And you have to do that for, you know, a couple hours sometimes while the monkey's performing the task to get enough data from a single neuron, right? Um, in, a, in a single recording session uh, while the monkeys perform the task. And, and then you, you know, after you do that for weeks and weeks and weeks, then you have enough neurons to then start to ask about the average, you know, you wouldn't say population because they're on separate days, but at least the average neuronal activity um, and, com and can compare the average activity between different conditions uh, while the monkeys perform the task. Mm -hmm. So, the, so the, what we compared is, you know, we'd, um, I would record a neuron in the various areas, and we can talk about the different areas that I, brain areas that I recorded from, but they would have different types of activity related to the task, right? So the main area that I began recording in, because that's the area that, that my advisor was famous for and focused on, was the frontal eye field. 
and this is an area involved in producing uh, eye movements, but also responds to visual stimuli. And if you have to keep something in mind, like if, if I flashed a, a light, um, or if I um, asked you, if I flashed my, you know, how many fingers am I holding up and then took it off the screen, uh, while you're keeping that in mind, there'd be activity, kind of, it's called delay period activity in the frontal eye field. So people think this is a readout of working memory, for instance, uh, but it's still, you know, that's still up for grabs. But so, so different parts of the task gave rise to different um, types of activity in the neurons. And what we would do is we would, any neuron that, <laughs> that, that um, fired in any different way during the task, I would record it. So sometimes there'd just be a neuron that only had a visual response. Sometimes the neurons would have only eye movement responses where there's this little burst of activity right before the eye moves uh, into what's called its receptive field, mm -hmm. which is the spot in space that's happiest, that neuron is happiest when you could say when the eye move or, or is partly responsible for the eye moving into that one particular location in space. And so, you know, we, I recorded a ton of different neurons while the monkeys performed these, this um, metacognition task. Uh, and then you can go back and look at the different trial types and see if the neural response differed between the different trial types. So you can compare the activity of when the monkey got the decision right and then bet high as if it got it right versus when it got it right but bet low as if it wasn't confident versus when it got it wrong, the decision wrong, but bet high as if it thought it got it right or was just taking a chance or whatever mm -hmm. uh, versus the fourth condition if it got the decision part wrong and then bet low just to be on the safe side again. So that's what we did. And so then what are the types of conclusions that you can draw from these single neuron studies? Just in general, for what can you get from a single neuron? Yeah, yeah. So, so here you were measuring the activity, the activity over time at different stages of the experiment. So let's say, let's say you do those measurements, then what are you looking to uh, conclude from the measurements that you see? Well, I mean, this was, uh, I don't want to say fishing expedition, but it was exploratory in that there were a few different types of outcomes one could have expected to, uh, right. to get. And I, re you know, I recorded in three different areas to, to see, you know, was there, was there a signal that we would consider a metacognitive signal in any of these areas? at least in any of the single neurons and just, you know, on the whole population as well, considering all of them together. Um, and so you can imagine a couple of different scenarios where, where, you know, what I really wanted to see is, uh, it, you know, if you're thinking of consciousness of being aware of something, um, you might think that the neuron, like a, a neuron that only was reading out metacognition, let's say, only reading out the confidence, you might, the monkey might make a decision um, and let's say the neuron's completely silent during the decision-making period, which we wouldn't have expected because we recorded in eye movement and uh, visual type areas. But mm -hmm. if you're recording like a pure, quote unquote, metacognition neuron, you might think during the, that little decision phase, completely silent. And then sometime between when the monkey makes the decision uh, and when it has to bet on that decision, there's some signal in there that's like, oh, you got it right. Or, oh, I don't know. Or, you got it wrong, but let's see, let's see, let's just, you know, bet high, you know, something like that. And you might want to see like a burst of activity. I mean, we never saw that. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen in the brain, but we didn't see it in, in the areas that we recorded. Mm -hmm. The quote unquote metacognitive signal that we found um, was actually not in frontal eye field. It wasn't in, um, I also recorded in dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, which is just in front of the frontal eye field. And if you look in the human literature, actually, depending on where you look, all the metacognition is in the frontal 
cortex. That's where everything high cognitive, uh, high, you know, high functioning is anyway. Um, you know, everything, working memory, you name it. If, it. if it's high cognitive functioning, there's bound to be an fMRI response in the frontal cortex. But also, and particularly, uh, there's this network, kind of a famous network called the default mode network that, peop- you know, that was found in fMRI. And that is what, quote unquote, lights up in people's brains when they're doing nothing in the scanner, when they're just kind of introspecting, daydreaming, thinking about their day, thinking about themselves. And so I wanted, there, there's also a, uh, an eye field, an eye related and visual related area on the midline of the brain, just at the top, it's called the supplementary eye field. And it, it doesn't have these really nice eye movement responses or visual responses. Its responses are more subtle. Uh, and so, so recording there, that's actually where we found any sort of metacognitive signal. And it was subtle. Um, what, what we found was after the monkey performed, performed the decision stage correctly, uh, if the monkey was going to go on to report high confidence, then in many of the neurons, not all of them, but in many of them, you'd, you'd see this increase in activity that was kind of sustained. The monkey would make the decision and then the activity would ramp up and kind of hold on until the bet phase started. And then once it made the bet, it would kind of go down. Mm-hmm. So it was almost like it was, you know, if, if I wanted to make a really nice and tidy story about it, I would say that that is the signal uh, of the monkey keeping tracks, track of its decisions um, to report its confidence in, in its decisions. So you measure this in three different areas. And so then one thing you might conclude is that you can rule out two areas for kind of not playing a role in this stage of the metacognition. Whereas if you do see the activity in one neuron in this area, then you would, that's some evidence that this area of the brain plays a role in this part of the metacognition. Is that kind of the conclusion? It is. It's evidence toward. I mean, that's why the, the word correlate is in the title and not, you know, there's nothing causal about the the experiment. I mean, we, you know, if I had continued on, we probably would have either stimulated in various, in all three areas to see if you could then push around the behavior to see if you can change it from the monkey's normal behavior. And the other causal manipulation that is usually used in these types of um, neurophysiology studies is that you can just kind of... Um, you introduce like a little chemical that reduces the neural activity um, over like a sh- kind of a short period of time and then dissipates and then the neural activity comes back. So you're at that point ablating the responses and you can see then if, you know, if you reduce the activity in a certain brain area, does that uh, affect whether, you know, how the behavior, the output. But e- even that is not a, you know, purely causal story because you could be, that could just be a hub uh, in a network that where the true causal hub of that behavior is just feeding through that area that you deactivated, right? So mm-hmm. it's toward causal manipulation, but but it doesn't necessarily prove that that is the area that does metacognition, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, it seems like it could be, I mean, could it be somehow just distributed and it's actually the coordination of, it's some complex coordination of activity over time from multiple areas. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is the, the way that um, neuroscience in general is trending. You know, it used to be, I mean, it, the early fMRI days were are still kind of made fun of because uh, they liken it to phrenology. Um, so phrenology is like the uh, the old, uh, the antiquated view, which actually, you know, there was a lot of science behind it, but um, where you'll see areas drawn on the skull uh, or on the uh, on someone's 
scalp, right? And um, you'll see one area and it'll be the word uh, shyness or something. And that's, and people would feel your, um, the skull. And if you had like a bump there in that shyness area, then it means you weren't shy. But if you had a divot, you were, you know, and things like that. Um, and that very modular view of the way that our brains were laid out uh, carried through, you know, to the early fMRI days. Um, but that has largely gone away because, I mean, you know, only recently in using calcium imaging where you can image the entire brain almost of, uh, well, the entire brain externally, at least, you know, in the cortical sheets of, let's say, a behaving mouse. And I mean, it's just shown like even a simple uh, nose poke through a port uh, to like lick some juice from some tube, the entire brain lights up. I mean, mm. you know, aren't, aren't, you know, even like those sort of simpler, <laughs> I suppose you'd say, motor um, aspects of our behavior still take widely distributed networks. So yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's very short-sighted to, uh, yeah, I would never claim like if I, because I did find neurons that that modulated their activity with respect to metacognition. Of course, it's still distributed among this vast, you know, circuitry across many different areas. Um, I mean, that's that's a, a future goal in neuroscience is just to figure out, it's just so complex, but to figure out how it's distributed, you know, how many neurons does it take to uh, do metacognition? You know, those sorts of questions. But yeah, I mean, that, that's that's the modern view is that is more of a distributed um, flavor to it, much like deep learning networks, I suppose. So like since your PhD, I mean, you mentioned this calcium imaging. Was this something new that's been developed since your PhD? And if you redid this type of study, would you still use the single neuron type of measurement or would you use something else, do you think? These days, I mean, even when I was uh, doing that work, uh, there was a postdoc in our lab who was using Utah arrays, which have 100 electrodes, um, and those are more chronic. So the way I did it, every day I would lower an electrode at the end of the day, pull the electrode out, close up the cap, you know, with the hole in the the skull, you know, clean everything really well, make sure the monkey's happy, and then do it again the next day. Whereas in a a Utah array, you implant it one day, and then if everything goes well, you, you know, it stays in there for well, indefinitely, although that's not practical. But but then you have then you're recording large populations of neurons, and those populations have only gotten larger and larger. And, and in fact, I mean, we're up to the point where just you know with with electrodes. So calcium Im- imaging doesn't give you like the fine time scale of individual spikes. And we can you know there's a bit debate on whether individual spikes even matter. Uh, but you know e- even with electrodes, there's technology now where you're recording thousands and thousands of of single neurons at a time, and this you know, we're, we're just at this point now where we're like, well, what do we, what do we do with this data? How do we make sense of it? How do, you know, it, it's, there's so much going on, what's noise, what's related, and how do we manage all this data? And that, that's a large part of neuroscience right now. These, these different techniques like single neuron, fMRI, the calcium imaging, are they kind of developed with a certain set of questions in mind? Or do these measurement methods kind of develop independently somehow. And then we think of scientific questions that we could answer using the existing methods. Or is it not as simple as that? I think it it is as simple as that, but it's but I think the answer is all of the above. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the case of electrodes, going back to like Edgar Adrian and the, the development of this technology, he was very interested in actually re- recording from neurons. And that's what they were used for. And that's what they were developed for. So there are some technologies like that that are developed for that purpose. Mm-hmm. I don't know the story of calcium imaging, uh, how it was introduced to neuroscience, because 
I mean, these were molecular biology techniques when I was um, in a research lab, you know, green fluorescent protein and having uh, these proteins that you could that light up when they um, when a receptor is active or something like that, which is what calcium imaging essentially is. Um, and then, you know, targeting got more and more specific. And these things were developed to answer molecular biology questions, questions about, you know, what what um, membrane proteins were doing in cells and how they communicated and interacted. And then I think that, you know, as these technologies get developed, they get co-opted into dif- different sciences. That would be my guess is that's how they came into neuroscience, calcium imaging, for instance, um, specifically. But yeah, so the answer really is, I don't know. Um, and I probably a little bit of everything. I see. Yeah. But then like thinking forward to the future, do you think that just better measurement devices will be a key, play a key role in answering more questions? Well, there's a big fuss right now in, at least in neuroscience and trying to understand how brains operate in minds uh, that we have plenty of data and we don't know what to do with it. What we need are better theories. Uh, I mean, these, these two things interact all the time, but the general consensus is that the theory is lacking, or at least good theory is lacking uh, in neuroscience. And a lot of people these days are saying, well, why do we need more data when we don't even know what to do with it? Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, it's an issue. It's a problem moving forward because you're tempted to want to record from every single neuron, uh, you know, all of the activity and the glial cells too. Why not? The supporters, you know, of the neural activity. But we, we honestly wouldn't know what to do with it. And we wouldn't know what questions to ask uh, without a good theory of what we were, uh, you know, probing. Has it, has it always felt like this, that it's kind of difficult to come up with the good questions to ask? Or do you think there's something different about the current situation that we really are running into something where we start to need more theory? I think it's the same. I think it's always been like this. You know, but when I was in graduate school, I didn't do much modeling, but there were kind of simpler models back then. Uh, and that that is on par with these simpler types of recordings that were going on and the, the simpler data, the single neuron data, right? I, I don't know how to think about this socially or, you know, advancing humanity because you'd think that, so eventually we are going to be able to record from all neurons, right? And you think, well, why don't we set about figuring out what would we what we would do with that data once it gets there? And it may just be that there's so much to do with the stuff that we have already, and we have to figure out, well, what type of data is this? Is it slow fMRI data that has a million neurons and you know millions of neurons in every data point, or is it a millisecond by millisecond account of the actual action action potentials of, you know, a population of neurons? Um, and so there is that aspect, but in principle, I don't know why one couldn't simulate uh, a ton of data and just think about, well, what would we do with this and how would we handle it? There, sh- there should be a team organized to, th- you know, the future, the future team, right? I don't know who would fund them, um, but but I, I imagine also that they would come up with a solution and then that solution would never be needed because uh, the question would never be asked. That the solution they came up with. By the time we got to the uh, that era, we'd be asking better questions or different questions. So I don't know how it really works. Right. Yeah. 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 So then, when you finished your PhD, from what I understand, you did a postdoc. Did the contents of your PhD work play a role in your postdoc? Yeah. I mean, I did more of the same um, in my postdoc, ex- except that I was asking narrower questions. So this this was then questions about not something so highfalutin. It was more decision-making and being able to withhold a response, um, given that you're starting to prepare for a response, being able to withhold that response within um, a, 
a choice decision-making task. Um, and this is this was much better established uh, science and had a much longer history. So whereas my, my PhD work was uh, really broad and really exploratory, um, then my, my postdoctoral work was more of the same. I was still doing monkey neurophysiology at this point, recording more than one single neuron at a time, which is you know a blessing, I suppose. Uh, mm-hmm. But asking a much narrower question, but at, at a much uh, deeper level. And then I just you know I gained some modeling skills and, and dabbled in a few other things. But um, yeah, so that was basically that sums up the postdoctoral uh, experience. And then from there, uh, so nowadays you host the Brain Inspired podcast. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I'm tired. Yeah. You've also moved into creating a course, which is kind of at the intersection of AI as well as neuroscience. So, could you just talk about the path from doing the postdoc now to taking this focus on this intersection through the podcast and through the course itself? Sure. Well, I mean, the course isn't, uh, doesn't, well, it's halfway exists yet. It's, um, mm-hmm. I'm waking up earlier and earlier to work on it more and more just because it's taking so long. Uh, yeah, that's sort of, that, that's the goal is to, to launch this course, which the, the intention of the course is just to be a, a jumping off point for people to paint uh, a really broad, picture while getting into some of the details on how neuroscience and artificial intelligence, mostly deep learning networks these days, um, how they intersect, how they differ, how they can inspire each other, what what ways they touch each other and what ways you know they're similar and different. So the things that are in the course are the things that I talk about on the podcast that I, my guests talk about, actually. Um, and so the podcast I've been doing for almost three years now, I'm almost at 100 episodes which is, can you imagine getting to 100 episodes? You'll get there. We'll get there get eventually. There. Yeah. 100 theses. Oh, 100 theses. That's right. Yeah. That's a lot of work. But yeah, so so anyway, um, the, the goal was to for me to learn, basically, uh, and, and explore artificial intelligence and how neuroscience is related to it and, uh, and how it's related to neuroscience. You know, so I was in, I was a postdoc in 2012 when, the deep learning quote unquote revolution took off, but it really didn't affect me. We weren't, the models that I was making were these sort of, they're called accumulator models, but they weren't these highly distributed neural network models that that really exploded onto the scene with the ImageNet competition in 2012, when there was vast improvement with a convolutional neural network, which I'm sure your listeners are aware of. But I I wasn't even aware of that. Um, But I was just really interested in intelligence and in minds and how, how brains are related to minds and how much um, artificial intelligence was related. So uh, I knew there was a lot of work at that interface. I loved podcasts. Um, you know, you told me offline that um, right before we started that you listen while you run. That's what I do as well. Um, I listen while I cook. I listen when my kids are talking to me, so I don't have to pay attention to them. And you know, <laughs> anytime I can. But but I'm listening either to audiobooks or, or podcasts, and they're there really wasn't something at the level of uh, detail and technical level that I wanted, right? So I already had kind of a high education, you know, just through, well, I had a PhD um, through sheer tyranny of will. Um, and, when you know, listening to something like Radiolab, which is great, right? Podcasts like that that are really story-based and very fluffy, uh, but very entertaining to listen to. I just wanted more um, out of, you know, podcasts. And the, there just didn't exist something uh, that I wanted. So I, ju- I decided to make it. And that's how Brain Inspired um, came about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So 
on that topic of of wanting to learn, can you kind of think back to these almost hundred episodes and extract some patterns or some things that you have learned from doing all these different conversations? So, so you know, one of the things I'm doing is I'm revisiting a lot of people that I interviewed, and then I've invited them on to answer these questions that my listeners asked for this special hundredth episode coming up, which will actually be like a few different episodes. And so I've chatted with a lot of them again, and I've realized how far I've come in my own education because when you force yourself, so I, I do an interview, an episode every 10 days is what I aim for. And during every little stretch, I have to learn everything I can about someone's work, how it relates to everything else. And when, you know, when you put that deadline on and force yourself to do it, you're going you're gonna to really learn fast. And I, I mean, I don't know, I'm not a fast learner, but I, I, what I would say is that I have a much clearer picture, and it's not clear yet, of the different pieces that are available and being moved around these days, and a little bit about how they're potentially fitting together. Although it's still like this, there's this weird time because people, you know, there's a hot, um, the, the hot way to do things now in universities is cross-disciplinary uh, work, right? Where all the departments are intermingled and you have this um, cross-disciplinary uh, overarching umbrella um, department that, that brings together a bunch of different ones. But in reality, I mean, people are still kind of in their separate worlds, right? So there's the deep learning world. There's like the, um, like even in brain, even in neuroscience, there's still, you know, there are like the network analysis people and there are the uh, cognitive neuroscience, fMRI people. And there's, you know, there's more and more crosstalk, but uh, but it's interesting because these are de- all developing fields and you can kind of just getting the whole lay of the land, which is what my course is about. And I don't, I don't, I'm not going to like uh, advertise my course here, but, but I, but it, the same thing with the podcast, I wish someone had made a, a, a real overview type of course that was high level, but also gave you like a flavor of all of the different topics um, that was pretty quick that you could do it pretty quick. So you, you could realize oh, that's what I'm interested in, or that's what I'm not. And that's sort of the, where I am now is having a, a view of everything that's going on. Oh, it's, it's really nice to have and to realize how ignorant I was. And, and it's also really nice to know how ignorant I am right now and uh, how that ignorance will be replaced by a somewhat less ignorant but still ignorant future self, you know? So it's, it's just been a really great experience overall. Yeah, and then so maybe we could talk a bit about this, uh, this intersection. So maybe starting with machine learning or AI versus neuroscience. So do you think that these two areas, however you want to define them, have different goals in mind? So, you know, the answer is yes and no, right? Um, there's yeah. like both. AI obviously, is a really wide field. And, and you can speak of this better than I can in machine learning. I guess you're asking about machine learning and not AI, I suppose. It seems like... Um, well, when you talk about the goals of a field, maybe it is kind of a ridiculous question and it's it's too high level, but maybe it's some weighted combination of things. And so mm-hmm. in machine learning, it seems like there is an emphasis on understanding things, but also an emphasis on building things. And so if we build a model uh, that we want to do well on a task, then we might want to understand it more in depth. Whereas at least from an outsider's perspective, it seems like with neuroscience, you have something that exists. You have the human brain. And so the focus is going to be more on understanding. And if we build something, it's always in the name of understanding something that exists. 
that was the way that I was thinking about it, but I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, even in neuroscience, there's this uh, tension between understanding and what I would call prediction or, or building something to make it work, which in neuroscience means to help pe people, you know, to help cure diseases, right? And if you can um, build a system that can manipulate someone's brain in such a way that it improves their life if they're sick, uh, you know, then then you've then you've done good neuroscience, right? And mm. and I don't so I know at least that there is a lot of AI that is concerned with understanding, and there's a lot of neuroscience that's concerned with understanding. Um, but what you said is that there's machine learning that is concerned with understanding, and I don't know if I believe you. Because it, I thought machine learning was all about prediction and 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 applying and building things that work, right? Yeah. So let's take for example uh, machine translation. Uh, we might have some objective that we want to build a system which translates languages really well, and so eventually we come across some model class that we use like transformers or something like this, like some type of, of neural network. Uh, and then the research is about, uh, well, like, is that the right model? So coming up with new models, uh, what are better learning algorithms for these models? But then we want to understand the model. So for example, we might want to understand the, the training dynamics when we use stochastic gradient descent for training the model. And so a lot of people will work on just very mathematical, very theoretical ways of trying mm. to understand this process. For its own sake, for the beauty of it. Sometimes it'll translate into practice. So we might understand okay. the learning algorithm better, and that'll suggest different things for, for practice. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and then there's understanding in terms of like interpretability, but that's, that would be a separate avenue. Yeah, and then another aspect, uh, or another difference seems to be that so for this translation system, for instance, if you're some uh, research person, you have a desk and someone comes up to your desk and gives you a new method that allows you to improve the machine translation system, it doesn't matter if it's inspired by the brain. It doesn't matter if it involves some new method. Um, as long as it's not a hoax, then we'll use it for our new machine uh, translation system. And it seems to me that that might be a difference where... In neuroscience, again, just from a complete outsider's perspective, it seems like there always has to be some correspondence with this actual physical thing, the actual physical brain. Well, I think it depends on what you're studying. I mean, yeah, neuroscience and especially neurobiology is very concerned very specifically with the brain and how the brain implements those things. But, you know, part of what, well, the reason why we all got into it is to understand <laughs> you know, how the brain creates mind, how the mind and brain are related. So, and that's, you know, and the brain is the only real artifact that we know um, that gives rise to mind and has the, so far, the most general um, intelligent capabilities. And so there's a bet, you know, in among many neuroscientists that, you know, to really improve machine learning or to get over that there'll be, you know, multiple hurdles along the way. And that there might be some insights from the way the brain processes things. Um, and there'll be lots that won't be applicable to machine learning, but maybe some of the important things um, and, and important advances in machine learning beyond just efficiency. I mean, efficiency is the main thing that people point to 
when they point, you know, the inspiration of looking to brains for inspiration is how efficient brains are, that they run on such low power and that the Googles of the world are eating up all the power in the world, just running these deep learning models, right? Um, mm-hmm. In this you know, insanely large, at this insanely large rate. Um, but beyond that, a lot of people, including myself, um, I mean, I, I guess I root for the brain for neuroscience, but I also think it's just would be a uh, a real interesting thing if the if machine learning came up against hurdles that were solved by insights in the way that the brain processes things. And that's mm. no guarantee, like you said, if someone someone comes up with, and in fact, you guys can search among a much wider space of possibilities, right? So you yeah. could run like an open-ended search algorithm. I know you had Ken Stanley on, uh, and he was on mm. my podcast as well. So you, you bring Ken in, and he runs an open-ended uh, search algorithm, right? And then maybe you can find something um, through that way that improves your machine learning uh, performance and algorithms, and that may be the case. I mean, my, I guess, hope and bias and and bet is that there, there will be insights, although I can't point to them um, from studying the brain. That that there might be hurdles in machine learning to get over. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned this this power thing. Um, do you see this as one of the potentials for neuroscience helping in machine learning? Could you go into more detail on that? Right. So the way the, the brain largely communicates or the way two neurons largely communicate is through a, an action potential or a spike, right? So, um, you know, and, and the way that uh, the vast majority of neural networks work is on these rate code, rate um, activation functions. That it's this, uh, this continuous function that can go up and down um, and, uh, and communicate with the next neuron with a certain value between whatever, you know, range of whatever window of max and min. Uh, whereas a neuron will either send a spike or not. I mean, there is a lot, a little complication to that because it's still sending voltages and changing voltages. But by and large, the, the currency of communication between neurons is spikes. And we know that the brain operates at 20 watts, I think is the famous number, the, the same amount of power it takes to, um, to light a light bulb, at least maybe the Edison kind. I don't know about the new efficiency, higher efficiency ones, newer ones. But... Um, but spiking itself, and this is what has led to neuromorphic computing, is using these event um, uh, events to communicate. Or, you know, event is the neuromorphic term for a spike, like a single pulse between neurons. And it's the pattern of those. I mean, so so this goes back to like the neural code and how the brain works, which we still don't know. You know, d- does a given neuron integrate however many spikes are coming in over a given period of time? You know, or does it? Does it time the spikes, and that is what the that's where the information is? We we don't know the how information is passed among different neurons uh, specifically. I mean, we know a lot about it, but the answer is not final. Um, but you know, sending a spike, one spike every you know few hundred milliseconds or you know fifty milliseconds or whatever, is much more efficient than every millisecond sending a value to the next unit. I mean. It would be 50 times more efficient, right? And then if you increase the, depending on how large your network is, millions, billions, whatever of units, that that efficiency really starts to matter. Um, and so there are a lot of people working on neuromorphic computing to try to reduce, which is inspired by spiking, much of it is, to try to reduce the, the power consumption. Yeah. I see. Yeah. And then what about alternative ways, potentially, of training networks? So... For neural networks, we have backpropagation, 
is this something that's looked into in neuroscience? Like does or how does the brain do this credit assignment? And could that potentially inspire some new machine learning methods then? Yeah, this is a huge topic on my on my podcast. I mean, it's, I think maybe uh, 20% or something of the, of the people that I have on, we or well, more, we end up talking about backpropagation. But, you know, it's the question is, can the, ba- the brain do credit assignment? It can't do backpropagation the way it's done in neural networks, but can it do something equivalent? Um, and so there are many models and many people working on this. I mean, I can just mention one that might speak to the difference between machine learning and or units in neural networks, at least, and neurons in the brain. Um, so, you know, what, what is known is that there are not these symmetrical back and forth connections between a neuron and the, neuro- the next neuron uh, that it projects to. It does not project back with a, a, an equal synaptic weight onto the neuron that, that is projecting to it. We know that. Um, but there is a, a ton of recurrence in the brain. I mean, there's more recurrence, uh, there's more feedback than feedforward projections. So there are pathways where you know, from way down the line, from the output at some point where the, there's the uh, motor neuron that commands you to move your finger, um, from that output, it can send a copy uh, to, you know, it, and it, we know every neuron on average uh, connects with like 10 to the fourth uh, other neurons, 10,000 other neurons. I mean, that's a really huge number. So there's a lot of room for, you know, a, a feedback pathway to for credit assignment to happen. Um, but the shape of neurons is where it becomes interesting and potentially, you know, different than than units, which are just a point process essentially that integrates a number and then spits out, you know, a, a new number. Um, so a neuron has different, you know, it has an axon and uh, that reaches out that that sends action potentials, and it has dendrites that reach out from its cell body that receive inputs from neurons. And these dendrites are have very complicated shapes, um, and some of the dendrites. Um, are such that they are electrically um, basically dissociated from the body so that uh, they can receive lots of input without passing it on to the body uh, until it gets like to a certain, unless there's a certain style of uh, what's in this case, in this particular example, uh, I'm using, and this is work by Blake Richards and, uh, you know, many other people at this point. Um, if, If those dendrites that are sort of separated electrically from the cell body receive a bursting kind of incoming fire, firing rate, then they communicate with the cell body. Then that signal gets down to the cell body. But if they receive just kind of this low level spiking here and there uh, activity, um, then they don't. And this could be the, this, you know, and then there's all the other dendrites that are receiving all the other inputs. Uh, and there's a distinction made between this electrically uncoupled um, branch of dendrites that may receive some feedback. So it turns out if you if you make this in a model, you can approximate backpropagation. And, and there's lots of different ways to do this in models, but this is just one example that I'm using uh, where you know these electrically uncoupled dendrites uh, get this bursting activity. When they're getting this bursting activity, it serves as the feedback, which also um, interacts with the feed forward process of incoming sensory information. And that's how the neuron uh, changes its weights. And you can do it in such a way that it approximates backpropagation. So there are lots of solutions uh, like that these days. And it's a really um, productive and, I guess, hot topic in, in neuro AI. I, I, I think it's becoming a term. Neuro AI is like going to be a field, I suppose, if it's not already. 
And then just at a high level, so you said there's a lot of different ways of doing it. So I guess the style of the research is they'll actually come up with a computational model that implements their idea. And then how do they make the how do they make sure that it actually corresponds to something that's biologically plausible? this particular model actually you know that's interesting this is kind of it's a real back and forth between experimental findings and uh developing models because if i am correct i'll have to ask blake about this but um there were experimental findings kind of early on that showed um this uncoupling of of this you know these dendrites that are um that stick out far from the cell of the body and i don't remember what the original hypothesis was about the difference in their electrical activity with the incoming signals versus the more what are called proximal proximal dendrites. Apical is the word I should have used for these uncoupled electrically uncoupled dendrites um, that kind of stick far out. But the more proximal dendrites that are closer to the uh, neuron body, you know, process incoming signals and communicate that to the cell body in a different way. And I don't remember. I, I cannot remember the experimental question that was being asked. Uh, but then that information was used then to you know, think about, well, how could this be implemented in a model? Would it make sense? How, how would we make sense of this? And that's, that's, I believe how, you know, it got off the ground. I mean, there's this beautiful back and forth between modeling and experimental data or, or cycle, I suppose, um, that just occurs over and over. And I know that there's a cycle in machine learning as well. The, the difference is in neuroscience, that cycle is slow. And in machine learning, it's like lightning. And so there's a lot of, a lot of neuroscientists who are, uh, you know, frustrated by how slow neuroscience goes relative to machine learning, or rather, another way to put it is, there's a lot of jealous neuroscientists out there. Uh, you know, for jealous of people like you in the machine learning world that can do these, you know, quote unquote, machine learning experiments really quickly and turn mm -hmm. it around. Yeah. Well, yeah, both of those things—the the power consumption and then the uh, credit assignment—sound like really interesting areas. So then, yeah, thinking about how machine learning could potentially help in neuroscience. I wrote down just some high-level thoughts, and I, I thought I'd try a new section called "Wishful Thinking versus Reality." This is a new thing, huh? All right. <laughs> so um, I'm going to say some ideas where where uh, machine learning could potentially help help you and others in neuroscience, and you're going to tell me whether it's wishful thinking or or uh, reality. Like, can you think of concrete examples where this has already happened? Before we start, though, I interject. One thing is that. I mean, the, the general gist right now in neuroscience, or well, I suppose in neuro AI, is that machine learning has a lot more to offer neuroscience than neuroscience has to offer machine learning. So uh, they might all be reality. I'm not sure. That's why I'm asking. So the first is uh, actually going to this idea of fast versus slow experiments. So potentially with a machine learning model, we could model, I don't know, some, some part of the brain and then perform really rapid experiments with it. And then that could actually inform which kind of slow experiment we should actually do on the physical, on the actual brain. I'm gonna have to go between reality and wishful thinking. I mean, so there's a lot of work in with, especially with, well, th there's kind of two main um, intersections with deep learning and neuroscience. One is this now kind of classical, if you're a neuroscientist, mapping of uh, convolutional neural networks and layers in convolutional neural networks onto the visual hierarchical visual hierarchy of processing in brains. So in brains, you go from this really early visual cortex 
that respond, you know, the neurons respond to things like edges and contrast between dark and light and things. Uh, and then you go, that's V1. Then you go to V2, V3, and on V4. Um, and by the time you get up to V4 and temporal cortex, which is sort of close to the end of the line, you have these representations where, well, well, I won't use the word representation. The neurons respond to like these complex features, well, complex objects like chairs and, um, you know, whole objects, right? So, and the idea is that you build up over a, a hierarchy. And one of the more famous things right now in neuroscience is using, is by creating a convolutional neural network with layers that map onto the layers known in the brain, the different successive regions in the brain, uh, you get neural responses that do a, a, a and unit responses that match pretty well within the different layers. And the representations in the artificial network in the in the layers of uh, CNNs match really well to the representations or what the neurons are responding to when someone is looking at, at stimuli. So, so there's that. There's also um, a lot of work in recurrent neural networks these days where um, the, and, and a big push in dynamical systems theories theory and uh, seeing how these artificial neural networks um, can be described in dynamical systems terms like fixed points and attractors and then comparing it to the neural data in brains and doing the same sorts of transformations on the neural activity in brains and, and comparing then the profiles and the, um, the, the dynamical landscapes, if you will, between those, those two, between the neural uh, and the artificial, between the biological and artificial. So I'm, I'm not sure if that's quite reality, but it's along those lines. And, and then those, yeah. those uh, artificial uh, tests can, can inform like, well, what, you know, what, what task should we test? Because you can actually have the artificial networks perform the exact same task that you know your animal or or human will. So there there is a lot of that compared between artificial and neural networks. Yeah, that's really interesting. But that's not a one word answer for reality or wishful thinking. Sorry. Yeah. No, I I don't want a one word answer. <laughs> yes, yeah, so the next one is um, data processing. So like we talked about, as we measure more and more things, we might get to the point where we actually just have too much data. But then that's where machine learning could potentially step in to somehow uncover patterns in this data and therefore tell us perhaps what's happening in all this data that we collect in the brain. Uh, reality, but mostly in terms of things like dimensionality reduction and create, you know, making um, and also even, you know, like I recorded uh uh, spiking activity on single electrodes. And now we have, you know, these huge arrays of electrodes and you're getting all this data and you just run, there's a sorting algorithm, right? A machine learning algorithm that just sorts all of the neurons automatically so that you don't have to discriminate them by hand and clean them up by hand anymore. Uh, I mean, there's lots of other examples of this. So uh, reality. And in fact, a lot of people say that that's the main uh, way that machine learning has helped neuroscience is, is through these tools that you can analyze the data. I see. Okay. But for higher level things, it's not there. Like, you, you know, so, you know, there hasn't been a, uh, uh, a deep learning network that has created a useful hypothesis yet. So that's something that's wishful thinking right now. Mm. And then um, the last one, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what to call it, but it's the idea that, like you were saying, in machine learning, there's less constraints. And so potentially, um, we might develop certain machine learning models that have really good, really general performance 
on almost human-like tasks. And then we could actually look at the properties of the machine learning model. And that might actually kind of tell us what to suspect about the brain. So maybe, I don't think this is correct, but maybe we actually find that deep learning with backpropagation can do everything that humans can. So then maybe the research is focused on like, how do we, what slight modifications to backpropagation would we have to do to make it biologically plausible? That's just an example, and I don't think it's a correct example, but it's the flavor of, of, of type of thing. Well, I, mean, I, I think I'm, I'm being influenced by the conversation I just had um, with a, a few people, with David Cicillo and Omri Barak, who use these recurrent neural networks uh, in a dynamical systems way. And there's this concept um, of universality, and there's a there's a question whether. So one of David's interests is, why is it that, so when, when you do compare the solution that a recurrent neural network comes up with when you train it using backpropagation through time, for instance, um, it comes up with a solution that in the dynamical systems landscape, looks very similar to the solution that the brain, uh, which is already a trained network, um, also. Uh, has um, settled on, and the differences between a recurrent neural network in you know on a computer and the brain are vast. But there's so there's this question like um, within a certain regime, within a certain set of tasks, and the way that it's set up, there are these uh, similar solutions that the networks come up with. So I'll say reality because then um, you know you can potentially set up build a recurrent network. And this is actually the the impetus of much of uh, Omri and David's research these days. Make a recurrent network, train it, uh, and then use the insights from it to reverse engine reverse engineer it. Use those insights to make hypotheses, although it's still the human making the hypothesis. But use the insights um, garnered from the trained neural network to make hypotheses hypotheses to test in brains. So mm-hmm. I think that's reality. Would you say is that a reality answer? Yeah, yeah, that sounds like reality. So this is a lot more real than uh, this is good. Yeah, oh, there, there, I mean, it's really, it's. I mean, I, I uh, I'm interested in these topics, so it's fascinating to me, obviously. But there's a lot of really interesting work going on at the interface, so you should look into it. <laughs> yeah, so maybe just in the in the interest of time, we'll start to to wrap up. Do you think? <laughs> sorry, I'm talking a lot. Oh, sorry. No, 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 this was in the time's flown by. It's crazy. Um, looking back, do you think that you had a certain objective function that you were optimizing during your PhD? And do you think that that somehow changed over time? Uh, the objective function, I think, was uh, what is the so to rid myself of the feeling of failure. I don't know. I don't know how you'd define mm-hmm. that objective function, but that that was part of it. Just to um, that and, you know, being interested in a topic and being able to excel at it. So I don't know, is, is that an objective function? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, I guess the, the thesis, it represents successful research, like the successful outcomes of, of research. Uh, and a lot of the times what we don't see is all of the experiments that led up to it that might be failed experiments. So looking back, I mean, did, did this failure actually play a role during the PhD? And now with a few years removed from it, long-term, do our failures actually valuable? I mean, I'm a really big believer in learning from failures and learning from mistakes, but I don't know that I, 
I didn't have any catastrophic failures in graduate school. I was super, super lucky. There were lots of little failures along the way, and many of them of my own making. Um, <laughs> I mean, outside of the actual science, because part of science is communicating the science and the hurdles you have to jump through in, in writing your thesis and writing documents leading up to your thesis. And I remember, uh, I think it was called COMPS, um, in the third year, you had to like develop a grant, a fake grant, kind of peripherally based on your research. And I did it, and I had to present it, and it was uh, uh, it really failed. <laughs> One of my thesis committee members was like upset with me for not having put more into the presentation and more care into um, creating it. And I actually had to redo a bunch of it. And that really stayed with me, but it was really uh, devastating. Uh, I don't like disappointing people. I did that enough with my parents. And um, and that felt really, uh, really bad to have disappointed her, you know, for instance. Um, but but then I learned how important it is to put as much care as you can uh, into um, presenting things, even if it's among friends, uh, that, you know, a lot of care needs to go into how you um, communicate topics. And I'm still, you know, learning. But so the next time I presented, I, I did much better. And that really stuck with me. But that's not a, a scientific failure, which is probably what you're looking for. I mean, I had a long day in surgery one day that we got under control. Uh, but that, that could have been a really big mistake. But it was just a learning mistake on where not to drill. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And then um, the final question of the thesis review is always, so I mean, thinking back through the PhD, through roughly 100 different interviews, the pressure's on, you have to come up with one piece of advice for a new researcher. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of joking. I mean, it could just be one thing that's maybe useful to, to keep in mind. Um, it doesn't have to be all encompassing. Um, uh, you know, I don't have one piece of advice. I, I do have like a, a collection of principles now that I regularly review. I mean, I actually have it in my Evernote notes, you know, and it's, you know, based on five or six different books that I will go back and read through over and over, maybe, you know, maybe once a year, once every two years, uh, and then resummarize and see how I'm doing. But one, one of those main principles is just a bias toward action. So, so I grew up and one of the big mistakes I made was thinking that thinking was enough, uh, but it's never enough. I mean, and if you have an idea, and this is going into, you know, graduate school uh, as well, if you have an experimental idea, um, as as much as you can, I would say just take action on it. Um, and uh, but because if you if you think about it, you'll just forget about it, and um, and nothing will come of it. And and by taking action action on it, you are bound to fail. And that's I mean that's the whole the way to ratchet up is uh, take action. Don't worry about the consequences. Don't worry about looking stupid because everyone looks stupid, which means no one looks stupid. But go ahead and do the thing, fail. And learn, and and then just keep ratcheting up, and that's I think that's the quickest way to to make progress, uh, both personally and and professionally. I'd say. I mean, I have, I have a ton of other advice, but I think that, that would be the, the the one. Yeah, take action. Yeah, that's really great. And I think for more advice, um, I'm a big fan, and everyone here should go listen to the Brain Inspired podcast. <laughs> and so, thanks so much for for doing this interview, going back and looking at your PhD. Uh, as well as things that you're thinking about now. And thanks so much for coming on the thesis review. 
asking me. It was a, a really fascinating exercise to go back and, and relive those days. So I appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. Thanks. Thanks.